Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, everyone. Of course, we're still uh, taping off-site, off U of T, but I understand the classes are resuming. Here is a whole lot of prayer around those uh, education workers and people going back to schools out there. Keep safe. Uh, certainly, we're always interested in what you have to say. Thanks for your feedback after last week's show. Um, of course, that was a good one with Sandy Hudson and those incredible women activists at Roncesvalles Macdonaldway. Today is uh, another exciting panel. It's our law and disorder panel. We have two uh, who will not be strangers to you out there in listener land. We have Andre uh, Demise, who is a contributing editor to McLean's magazine. We have uh, David Slavic, who is a political consultant. And of course, myself, uh, the Radical Reverend, yours truly, Sherry, De novo, and we're going to waste no time because there's so much to talk about today. Um, first and foremost, um, some of us, maybe not all of us, but some of us have been kind of, uh, you know, watching without let up of the Democratic National Convention and all of speechifying that's happened. Andre, I'm going to start with you. Uh, just first of all, overall impressions: what the hell's happening south of the border, and particularly, what did you think watching the DNC? Oh, I'm the I'm the wrong person to ask. I didn't watch none of that. <laughs> it was it was it was too depressing. And tell us more. Say more. <laughs> oh no! When I saw that Michael Bloomberg was on the speakers, as a matter of fact, when I saw Michael Bloomberg was on the speakers, list, I was like, I am not watching this. And then last night, I was like, you know what? Maybe I should just like catch a little bit of it, just to you know uh, know what happened or be able to write intelligently about it. I turn on the t- t- the TV, and who do I see on my screen? Michael Bloomberg. I said, ah, forget this. I'm done. Like I was just, I was, I was doing my level best to avoid uh, ever seeing Michael Bloomberg in front of my face ever again in my life. And then the the one time I make the mistake of tuning into this convention, what happens? Um, I did catch some of the highlights though, and I didn't see anything about policy. I saw a lot of talk about unity, about bringing America together again, about hope for the future and this that and the third all of these like these platitudes these these immaterial these like aspirational bs platitudes and no policy behind it and i'm sitting here thinking to myself you're having this convention uh virtually like there aren't people in an arena together and the reason for that is that there is a global freaking pandemic and there's no conversation about Medicare for all. They're talking about protecting provisions of the Affordable Care Act, but there's no talk about moving towards a universalized healthcare system. And I thought, like, there's no reason for that other than Democratic donors uh, don't want to be cut out of the lucrative uh, healthcare industry. And if you're you're literally putting the profits of healthcare companies ahead of people's lives, you don't deserve to govern. I'm sorry, I just. People don't deserve a second Trump administration, but they deserve far better than democratic politics. I'm just, I don't know, I'm, I'm completely sickened by it. Yeah, I, and certainly uh, on my social media feed, I'm hearing, you know, from the many in the left who just can't even hold their nose to vote for Biden um, that are down there. But also, of course, Chomsky et al. and many others who are saying, listen, the first order of the day is get rid of the fascist 
or the crypto fascist, depending on how uh, hung up on the terms you are. Yeah. And, um, well, and, and, and let's save the world first and then figure out what that world's going to look like second. <laughs> yeah. David, do you want to weigh in here? You know, it's, it's just really interesting for me because I, I've spent most of my adult career working in democratic politics from the inside and, and have found myself uh, lurching to the outside and, 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 and found myself ashore in many ways, looking back at, at a, a country and a party that I don't recognize. Um, now, now, the party hasn't. The party has improved in many ways. You have a lot of young guns who are, are really who are really brilliant. Uh, Rashida Rashida Tlaib. We have uh, we have AOC. You know, everyone's got their problems, but these are people who are pushing the the country in the right direction and and, and really embracing sort of the the millennial and Gen Z uh, you know agenda. You know, younger people are are precarious. They're they're they are, are scared for their future. They're they're in debt up to their eyeballs. There is no future for them, and there's no prospect of ever owning a home or starting a family. We're seeing people who who really would have the values to start families and and to you know enjoy those sort of uh, more traditional pursuits, um, you know, postponing them further and further and further because they think they can't afford them and because they literally can't afford them. Um, the Democratic Convention did not provide any respite, any safe space for those people. We get we have a we have a party who who likes to make lip service to hashtags. At this point, you know, I saw a lot of things. I saw Elizabeth Warren have BLM and spelled in blood. Oh. And there was nothing, <laughs> there was nothing that, that said more about the Democratic Party. And I, I you know, and I'm someone who I, I like Elizabeth Warren because I'm a little bit of a technocrat myself. Uh, but, you know, I saw that and there was all these Easter eggs. It was a damn highlights magazine for, for adults who, to go through and say, oh, Thank these you. are the things I care about. I can find them in the back. And you know what? I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I'm not playing hide and seek with the Democratic Party anymore. The Democratic Party needs to come out and give me a president. I am not seeing one president in that agenda. And I'll tell you what, we talk about safe spaces. Any precarious person, any person who's ever been in a labor unit, any person who's ever tried to get an abortion should not have felt safe after watching that Democratic convention because there were anti-choice, anti-labor Republicans on that agenda. There was not one person from Planned Parenthood, not one person from pro-choice standpoint. There was not one person from a labor union, but there were five Republicans. And that's disgusting. Yeah, uh, hear you now. Still, though, you know, to uh, mention the Bernies and the AOCs, they're still saying vote Biden, um, even on the left of the of the Democratic Party, just to push it on back to you. Uh, you know, when the left of the Democratic Party call themselves socialists, they're saying, yeah, get rid of the crypto fascists and we'll make the revolution uh, later. Uh, <laughs> what do you what do you say? Yeah. So there is a uh, an awful tendency on the left to ascribe socialist views to people that don't hold those points of views. The, the farthest left tendency you'll get in the Democratic Party is a sort of a um, uh, like a ghost of Eugene B. Debs kind of social Democrat tendency. There aren't actual socialists in the party, not even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, there was a, um, uh, a, a moment where I thought there could be a nod towards the left. They, uh, they gave Andrew Yang some speaking time. They gave AOC 60 seconds of speaking time. Oh, and then they let actually, Michael Bloomberg if I, well, I'm gonna put a, put a, a bullet there and I'm gonna come back to that 30 seconds, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but then they let Michael Bloomberg take the stage. Now, when when somebody who's been relegated to sixty seconds of speaking time is saying, "Well, you know, we need to vote for Joe Biden," I mean, of course, because they're Democratic politicians. But uh, for for anybody that is not a loyal Democrat, and you know, we're there's two Canadians in this conversation, so 
what dog do I really have in this hunt? Well, I, I have family and I have a lot of family in the United States who are affected by American military policy, are affected by American healthcare policy, are affected by American economic policy. Like I, I care for my family and I care for other black people the same as if they were right up here north of the border. And I, I, I don't see any like any reason for hope. I don't see any glimmers of light whatsoever. And uh, to your point earlier about Noam Chomsky saying that, you know, the, the necessity of removing a fascist from office overrides other concerns. I'm sorry, but Noam Chomsky is not my dad. Uh, Angela Davis said the, uh, the same thing. She said that, uh, you know, give her a little bit of hope that Kamala Harris was added to the ticket. Angela Davis is not my mom. We're allowed to disagree with intellectuals and theorists who have done significant work in the past, but I'm sorry, they're both dead wrong on this. Kamala Harris is no reason to feel good as, I mean, if Angela Davis as a black woman wants to feel good about Kamala Harris being added to the ticket, that is entirely her prerogative. But Kamala Harris has staked her entire career on uh, wielding the power of the state against black people, against the most vulnerable and marginalized black people. Kamala Harris wielded the power of the state to prevent a trans woman from having gender confirmation surgery while she was in prison. Kamala Harris in, uh, prosecuted or at least uh, uh, supported the policy that resulted in the, uh, the, uh, the arrest and, and convictions of mothers of truant children. Kamala Harris oversaw an increase in San Francisco of the, uh, of the prison population. There were people that were removed from their families and placed in the jail. About 1,900 people were arrested and convicted on marijuana-related charges under Kamala Harris's uh, time as a uh, San Francisco DA. During her time as uh, a California Attorney General, there was a general increase in the, uh, the prison population. And on top of that, we saw that uh, uh, California is now having trouble uh, controlling its wildfires because the slave labor that they call from prisons is, uh, has been decimated by COVID. Well, who was responsible for the, uh, the, 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 uh, not only the, the increase in that slave labor force, um, but also uh, hiding information that could have possibly uh, resulted in uh, the, uh, the prisoner's early release? It's Kamala Harris. So I'm, lo I'm looking at this ticket and I'm, I'm looking at uh, you know, the, the people who fall onto that left tendency that call themselves socialists, but are really mild social Democrats saying that the most important prerogative is to remove a fascist from office. But I'm sorry, you all believe in this social, the system of social relations that you call capitalism. You all genuinely, genuinely believe in American unity. And as long as you believe in those things, then we don't have anything in common. They have no right to tell people on the left that the most important prerogative is to remove a fascist from office. To me, the most important prerogative for people on the left, people that fall outside of that capitalist tendency, people that are actually, even if you're a democratic socialist or just a plain old socialist or you know a filthy commie, then your responsibility is to dismantle the system, not to continue to, to, to kowtow and feed into it. Well said, and thank you for that. Uh, David, weigh in. So what then? Um, so, so here you are. You're not going to be voting for Biden. You're not going to be obviously voting for Trump. I, I didn't um, say that. But what, so, I didn't say that actually. Okay. <laughs> I, I am. I, I am going to use my vote for Biden reluctantly, and I, I will say that it is with a heavy heart. It is with a heavy heart that I, I can vote remotely right now. Like it'd be, you know, if, if the post office holds up. But I am very concerned. Very concerned because one more, four more years of Trump. What well, probably have the maybe have the Senate, maybe have the House, and we know that not much will get done. But I do know that there will be any number of bipartisan partisan, uh, uh, 
bipartisanship around the deficit, around austerity, that will crush any social progress for the next 13 years. I know that Kamala Harris will probably be elected in 2024 if Biden is elected, if when he steps down. And that means that we may have 12 years of an austerity government, a tough on crime government, a government that has a hawkish approach to to foreign policy. And I'm scared. And I and I I am right now at this point in some sort of uh, maybe uh, self-abusive harm reduction scenario going to vote for Joe Biden. But I can tell you that it is, I am at 51%. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. Um, uh, okay, so here's a question. Um, since we're all, you know, uh, non-card-carrying socialists of one sort or another, um, what do we, like, how does this situation get changed around? How do we undo capitalism in the United States, whatever happens in this election? I mean, we've seen the uprising, get people onto the streets. We've seen the state response, which is, as always, violence. Um, we've, we've seen this We've seen this picture before. I'm old as dirt. I, I remember the Black Panther movement. I remember all of that, right? And and so here we are, um, and yet again, now thousands of people, um, but, you know, it's kind of drifted off the mainstream media focus uh, for one reason or another. And even in this country, and I'll get to this country in a minute, but let's stick to south of the border for now. Um, how do we uh, move this conversation to a, a situation where we do have some chance of getting rid of capitalism. Andre, weigh in. What do we do? I there's. I mean, we had a brief conversation before the uh, recording began, where I said that I'd spoken to a few friends south of the border, and what they were seeing is an NGOification of the protest movements. That is, uh, people who uh, took place in the uprisings when they originally began to crop up. That's when you saw. Uh, you know, police precincts being burnt down and, uh, and, and, and property damage happening and people wringing their hands over property damage and all of that, what you saw was a rebellion and an uprising in the, in the true sense of the word. And many of the people that took place or took part in those protests, their place is actually behind bars. A lot of them have been arrested. So many of the, uh, the people that came in either that uh, weren't arrested or came in on the sort of the second wave of the protest uh, after Black Tuesday, are now uh, engaging in a sort of an NGOification of the protest. That is, rather than engaging in direct action uh, or engaging in an uprising and rebellion, what they want to do is start some 501c3s and take their concerns to City Hall or take their concerns to, uh, to State Congress. So it, it, went, it went from going through uh, the course of direct action and, uh, and opposing the system uh, with the means available to the people, which is people power, and uh, co-opting that and turning it into a, another political project. So what responsibility do people on the left have, at least in my estimation, is to continue to engage in direct action to support people who are engaging in direct action and oppose the NGOification and the, and the corporatization of these movements. The thing about electoral politics is that it's designed to siphon energy from uprisings and protests. It's designed to take the rebellious spirit and channel it into the ballot box, supporting people that are uh, themselves supported by the very system, same system that brought about these conditions in the first place. I don't believe in taking your concerns to the ballot box or voting. Maybe if we're talking about local street ordinances or having a, a tree removed from a property or something to that effect. But when we're talking about actual human rights, when we're talking about this, the stakes of our survival of our existence, 
there is no answer that's going to be found at the ballot box, in my opinion. So I, I, I just want to interject my own opinions here. There's a great quote I came across that I used in, you know, Jesus, the true communist, which was uh, the uh, Benjamin Franklin quote who said, who described democracy as two wolves and a lamb voting for what mm -hmm. to have for lunch, you know. Um, yeah. But, but you know, <laughs> still true. However, as somebody who did spend 12 years as in elected office, I mean, we got, a, you know, we got a lot done. We got trans rights as human rights. We got banned conversion therapy in this province versus place in North America to do so. And, and there's no question in my mind that some of what we got done there out of my office did save some lives. So, but I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly. Um, there is such a cap on what you can do under capitalism um, and right. at the ballot box. I mean, and absolutely, you know, the uprising has achieved to me way more in just a matter of weeks than all of the commissions, all of the studies, all of academia, all of the policy makers, all of the elected representatives uh, looking at policing, for example, over the decades. So it's achieved a phenomenal amount. So there, nothing replaces that. Get in the streets, you know, raise raise the dust. Uh, you know, call for call for what you know, call for the impossible. Don't settle for the realistic. As Parisian students said in the 60s, and uh, and absolutely just keep it going. Um, David, weigh in here. How are we gonna How are we gonna get rid of capitalism? <laughs> well, I just wanted to just uh, just before I get to that, I want to just piggyback quick, quickly on what Andre said. I think you know I, one thing we all know from you know the from uh, uh, Ferguson is that the puffy blue vest holds up the the thin blue line. And, uh, you know, these, the NG, <laughs> the NGOification of, of these movements that are organic, you know, it is important to be able to have like, you know, consistent funding structures and the ability to go and, and do these things consistently. But, you know, having run an NGO in the States for advocacy myself, I've seen just how easy it is for well-meaning people to slip into a mentality that is about the maintenance of that, that NGO and the maintenance of your lifestyle. And people do pretty well running these NGOs. Some of these uh, people are getting paid $400,000 to $500,000 to run these NGOs. Their, their operations are very lean, uh, but the salaries are very high. And uh, that becomes a situation where you actually ingratiate people into seeing, like they start to eat their, they, they start to eat their own, uh, you know, they start to, to, to breathe their own smoke. And uh, you can see that on Twitter. And I think Andre has been one of the, the biggest uh, advocates for, uh, you know, uh, you know, pushing these people out of the dialogue. And uh, I think, you know, for us to break down the, the structures of capitalism, the safe, I think it's going to take numerous local uh, movements. And it's going to take a lot of, it's going to take things like they're doing in, in Alabama and in Mississippi, where they're, they're really just kind of changing the way the relations to the state are operated and, and the way people are relating to each other. And I, I think that it's going to take about, a ten, you know, 10,000 you know, uh, 10, revolutions must bloom because, um, you know, the U.S., state is just it's just not operable as, as it, as it operates I, I don't know today. if you saw this i don't know if, they, uh, if you saw this but uh jack dorsey just dropped 10 million dollars on the boston u center for, for anti-racist research uh which is headed up by uh, abram x kendi uh the author of how to be anti-racist so if you want to talk about how the ngoification um of, of the protest movements turns into things like diversity con uh, diversity and equity consulting and things like anti-racism mm -hmm. training it's it's the phrase that pays it's uh you know people 
uh, want to, at least people at the political and corporate level, want to feel like they're doing something, even if they intend on doing nothing. Yeah. I mean, Jack Dorsey, the very same person that believes that Africa is the, uh, the, the future of the world and is, you know, stacking up to uh, essentially do a redux of the uh, the scramble for Africa. That is, you know, the continent with the most plentiful natural resources and, and holds the key to the future of human development just because of the sheer amount of uh, minerals and natural resources. Yeah. Well, when he drops $10 million in anti-racism research, but then also is willing to support another imperialist project in Africa, that is essentially, it, it disguises, it, it covers up what the, the actual intentions of the ruling class are, as long as they can feel good about having made a contribution and I, th- I think the the, the NGOification of direct action and protest movements contributes to that. It, it enables the ruling class under the veneer of trying to help and trying to uh, uh, make people feel that there's unity and hope for unity in the future. Under the veneer of that, they're they're engaging in the very same imperialist projects that they were before. It's just got a woke veneer to it. You are listening to the Radical Reverend Show here uh, on podcast or on the radio at CIT 89.5 FM. Um, I'm delighted to have our Law and Disorder panel today. Um, and on it are Andre Demise, who's a contributing editor to McLean's Magazine, and David Slavik, who political consultant and, and erstwhile American, <laughs> talking about the, the DNC. <laughs> uh, so David, weigh in. So I, I think that, that Andre really makes a great point there. I, I think that there's a lot of focus and sort of centralization of a decentralized movement. And I think that anytime you see that, you have to be concerned. I think that, you know, investing in movements is important. I think investing in things, I think people putting money where their mouth is is important because that's often the only thing they can do. It's often, it's very good to listen to the voices that are the voices that are speaking their truth. And, uh, but we also have to be very wary of how that goes. And the other thing that I'm very wary of right now, and I think Andre could speak to a little bit more is the personalization of the anti-racism work that needs to be done in the world. Because the fact is that with systemic racism being the problem that it is, doing the work, which I hear a lot of lately, uh, really sounds like self-help jargon to me. And I think you have your Robin D'Angelo's and you have these people. These are self-help seminars. They're not systemic changes that make black and brown people's lives better in a material way. And I'm very concerned about it. Read through Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, and look for class. Look for a class and how class is used. It barely exists because Robin D'Angelo's book is not a book on anti-racism. The book is corporate training. It, 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 it's there to enable people who work in companies feel good that they've made some sort of a contribution to humanity by hiring workers that are not white. And the uh, the... The trap in that book is making white people feel as though the responsibility for ending racism falls on white shoulders, which on the surface of it sounds like absolute common sense. If white people were just racist, then, or, or if they were less racist, then a lot of these problems could be solved. But there is no analysis of how class and racism are wrapped up in one another. The fact that in, in order to uh, generate the reproduction of capital, in order to lessen uh, the labor wages that are, are, are possible to be demanded uh, by black people in order to end the super exploitation of, uh, of black labor, of black people's bodies, capitalism itself has to be ended. But that analysis will never make it into her work because her audience is not, well, I mean, first of all, her audience is not black people, but her audience is also not people who are interested in systemic change. Her audience are, are, are C-level executives. 
her audience are middle managers. Her, her audience are people that have a, a, a certain degree of guilt and just feel bad about the state of things, but don't want the system to fundamentally change. So there are a lot of people that are interested in keeping things status quo, but as you say, David, purging their feelings of guilt, uh, individuating these, uh, these systemic issues down to, well, if I just work on myself, I can make a broader change. And missing the fact that when we call these systems systems, they're not systems because they're made up of a lot of people. They are systems because they are the uh, the, the the mechanisms by which they reify that that oppression is almost invisible. It's rendered invisible because it's laundered through uh, corporations. It's laundered through the state and all of the other uh, the the, uh, the the policies thereof. So, to your point, yeah, atomizing and individuating this quote unquote work into self-help is a huge part of that problem. So uh, we just had uh, in Toronto, the first Christian left conference, which I was uh, uh, honored to be a part of the organizing committee on along with U of T and others. Um, and, and the keynote speaker, a, a, a doctor of theology um, out of Vanderbilt, a Dr. York Rieger, uh, his topic was, you know, he, he built it on the Che Guevara line about the problem with the uh, North American left was that we stand in a, in a circle and shoot, you know, um, that we don't know who the enemy is. And he talked about class. And interesting, Andre, that you should raise that because, you know, you don't hear class-based politics spoken much anymore. Anyway, um, Jörg's uh, thesis uh, of this talk, and we will be playing this next week on the Radical Reverend Show, along with some highlights from that conference on our faith panel. But um, what, what was interesting about it is he's saying, you know, um, yeah, we have to somehow build a class-based movement that takes into account all of the intersectionalities and the identities. And until we can do that, I mean, basically it's like, one against the other, it's the capitalist uh, government picking picking us off. So I wanted to get reactions to that and how the how the how we then do that. And David, do you want to your turn? Weigh in. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think one of the you know one of the interesting is as you know I, I'm an attendee of your congregation, so you you know that I have I'm personal faith. Um, you know, I think one of the things that people of faith, and I'm going to bring it back to that, can do is to understand that if you do believe in, in, in the message of Jesus, and I'm not to get preaching that, that you have to understand that, that class matters because, you know, I think that we all remember all of the allegories. Really, nobody, he was never like, I love the rich guy, right? And, uh, you know, and there wasn't much discussion of those types of things. And it was, it was, a, there was a lot of things about being a better person, but it was also about being, making a better world. And I think that you can make those arguments to those to the people in your lives in the language that they where you can meet them, and I think that's that's probably the best way to do it. Andre, do we stand in a circle and shoot at each other, or how do we get together and and actually focus uh, and focus our artillery on the ones that need to be replaced, i.e., the you know the hundred corporations that produce seventy one percent of the world's pollution, for example, mm. you know, weigh in. Well, there's a couple of things. One of my favorite speakers is uh, Vijay Prashad. Uh, and uh, Vijay often talks about this pursuit of perfect politics on the left. And this pursuit of perfection is that is what caught, like causes there to be a, a paralysis, a, a stasis, like nothing's able to move forward because we're so focused on trying to, wh whether it's like adopting the proper language and terminology whether it's uh, operating in such a way that everybody is going to feel okay, like trying to like make sure that all of the rough edges are smoothed out of any sort of movement 
before being able to move forward, before being able to organize. The thing is, if you're gonna get together with working class people, and I'm, you know, I'm working on uh, a project that's um, looking at the possibility. I'm not gonna you know, talk about myself as, as some sort of an educator or an activist or anything of that sort, but I'm, I'm working on a project that's looking at the possibility of working with the incarcerated and the formerly incarcerated. Now, if I'm if I'm going to be having conversations with uh, currently and formerly incarcerated people. A lot of them are going, to, are, are going to be jerks. A lot of them are going to have some very politically in, incorrect points of view, and we have to work on that. But we have interests in common. If I'm going to be having conversations with working class people, if I'm talking to people from around the uh, from around the neighborhood or in, uh, in, in 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 workplaces that aren't white collar, they're not going to have perfect points of view, and you just have to be okay with that. And that's one of the huge problems on the left is that we're waiting for this perfect movement to spontaneously coalesce in order for us to move forward and until that happens we're just stuck in this mode of circular self-criticism and meanwhile the ruling class is continuing to organize they don't give a crap whether they're perfect or not they don't really care about other people's feelings they just do what they do i, I there's nothing i think more emblematic of it and i know we're going to get to this in a second of Christian Freeland talking about implementing a feminist agenda um, as the uh, the new Minister of Finance. And I'm thinking, if this is a possible future Prime Minister of Canada, imagine the amount of imperialist BS that's going to be coming in under the auspices and under the guise of empowerment and feminism. Uh, to the second point about how do we work together and get out of this, uh, this, this sort of circular firing squad. One, okay, when we were put into lockdown, one of the, uh, the columns that I wrote or was that uh, we're always now being watched and monitored. We're, we're, we're transmitting all of our communication over these mediums that are designed to spy on us, that are designed to monitor our behavior, to be able to sell us things. That's, that's where we've shifted um, the majority of our interpersonal communication to. And I find it very dangerous and scary. The thing is, a lot of people were kind of worried about that. And then the words just went away. We accepted it as normal. And I think to myself, how is it that we continue to accept things as normal that ought to never be normalized, especially in terms of like uh, left and socialist politics? It's one of the reasons that I find that um, uh, socialism in North America is just this incredibly difficult game to play because people aren't willing to lay down hard and fast rules especially where it comes to things like uh, being monitored, uh, having our, our everything from our personal conversations to our business communications to our political organizing monitored, uh, and trying to find a way to make companies bend to our point of view. That is waiting for a company to tweet out a Black Lives Matter, um, asking for a company to, uh, to donate uh, to a cause, asking companies to accommodate practices uh, inside of the workplace and hire the right types of people that are going to make them fair and equitable and diverse and so forth. And it's almost as though there's like, there's two avenues that are now left for uh, people on the left, at least two, uh, you know, acceptable avenues. One is voting and the other is, is consumption. And if you are just, if you're willing to vote along with the right brand and if you're willing to consume the right brand, and try to hold that brand or that political organization's quote unquote feet to the fire so that they can become a little bit more like you, then that will overcome the system. I'm thinking to myself, like, they, this is this is exactly how co-optation happens. This is exactly how this uh, infinitely plastic entity shapes itself 
to approximate something remotely relating to social justice. And in the meantime, they've just like, they've dragged you in. So that, to that second point, it's like, there, there's just not enough of a willingness to draw distinct lines and call people your enemy. And without that, without being able to say there is a particular class of people that are an enemy to our class of people and we're locked in struggle with them. And it's our responsibility to oppose them no matter what form they come in. If we can't do that, then do we really have a left politics? So you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show, and you just uh, heard from Andre Javais, uh, who's a contributing editor to Plains. We also have David Slavic on the show, political consultant on this law and disorder panel for the Radical Reverend. Um, so let's move it, and Andre, you start to do that to Canada. Uh, so let's talk about Christopher Freeland. Let's talk about prorogation. Uh, let's talk about what's happening here on this side of the border. Um, and uh, and again, I, just to your point, Andre, like the, the like yes, we I, listen. I've had Christopher Freeland was on this show at one point when she was running. I she and Linda McQuaig were on, which was a really interesting. Uh, but at, at any rate, here's the thing. Um, you can still say this is an accomplished woman and still hold her accountable for her stances on Venezuela, Bolivia, in support of big oil. And, you know, of course, being an arch capitalist. I mean, you know, there are all sorts of issues you can you can say here. Um, David, I'll start with you. Weigh in on the political scenario. And we have a new uh, minister of finance, of course, because uh, uh, the other one had to resign. Let's be honest. Um, so, David, what's what do you, what's your take on this? So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna first say that uh, Christopher Freeland's office has some of the best constituent services I've ever had. I'm gonna start there, <laughs> and uh, and then I'm gonna move on to some maybe some more some more critical remarks. And I think I think that this really um, you can see in the Christopher Freeland appointment uh, much of what you see in the Kamala Harris VP appointment is that you you see a lot of people putting a lot of, of their identity into a person without stepping back and saying which things do I like about the person what is their agenda what what is what do they what plans do they have and who will they be vis-a-vis -vis me in government and I think that that's the thing that the questions that I'm not seeing asked as much as I would like and I think I think that because um, you know, you have a, a very, you know, we saw with the Jody Wilson-Raybould and, um, you know, the Jane Philippot uh, sort of uh, resignation, non-resignation uh, situation or, you know, sackings. Uh, we saw people get very up in arms about, you know, getting rid of the, the one or two uh, ministers who are female. And, you know, these things do matter. Representation does matter. And I, I think that's important. Uh, but we have to say what kind of representation. And, and I, what I would like to see, and, but we're not going to hear much of now because we, we don't have a government as, as, as such, is, uh, you know, a little more statement about what that means. Because as we know, uh, Christopher Freeland is the presumptive uh, prime minister. I think it, it's only a matter of time. Uh, people have different estimates about when that may be, but um, as we we have the uh, we have the throne speech coming up in, in in due time, you know we may see a different agenda coming forward from uh, the Trudeau administration, and maybe maybe an end to the Trudeau administration at least for now. Um, so I think that we have to we have to ask the, the difficult questions now. I think uh, you know we, there's in her in her in her writing she is absolutely the safest member of parliament probably, uh, but uh, we we need to you know keep on asking those questions and keep pushing. I don't know how much pressure will work. And I think Andre can speak to that a little bit, a little bit more fully. I just want to weigh in here before Andre uh, takes his kick at this can, but um, 
Uh, yeah, I don't think you'll see uh, the government falling, um, despite what the bloc, you know, sort of grandstanding about. I mean, NDP is not going to vote them down. And 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 let's, let's shift it a little bit to the NDP, too. Um, so Linda McQuaig, in a recent article for The Star, has said, where is the Green New Deal? And why can't the NDP use their status uh, as the minority, you know, as part of a minority government to push for that. I mean, yes, they push for CERB and we need CERB to keep going and probably, you know, we need that to become constant and forever. But, um, but you know, what about the, these other issues? Andre, weigh in, what's happening in Canada, your estimation? Uh, I, I don't see um, the government falling. I, I don't see Trudeau stepping back. I, I, don't, I don't see um, anything changing because Every time the Liberal Party has some sort of a uh, scandal or fiasco, everything from the uh, 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 the SNC level and fiasco to uh, the, uh, the the blackface fiasco to uh, this one with uh, the 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 weed scandal with uh, Minister uh, Morneau stepping down, the Liberals just tend to recover as if nothing happened in the first place. There's a uh, whether it's a resignation or a shift in the cabinet. Uh, a couple of mea culpas, and then things continue unabated. So at this point, I've, <laughs> I've kind of lost any hope that uh, the veneer will ever be take lo- taken off the liberal brand. And I think I think a lot of that has to do with well, just a couple of things. One is the uh, the fear of another conservative government taking power, especially uh, you know when you when you look at um, at a provincial level. Uh, how conservative governments have just swept across the provinces, and uh, the the two most destructive—I mean, the two—I think two of the largest and most consequential uh, governments, as, as far as Canada is concerned, uh, which have enacted two of the most destructive sets of policies—that uh, is Alberta and Ontario. Uh, people are afraid of a conservative government coming to power at the federal level, uh, so that leaves the Liberals as the de facto governing party. The NDP, I don't think, has enough in the coffers uh, to take a run at an election this soon. So, no, I don't see anything changing. The uh, case that I see people making for Christian Freeland, on on the other hand, is uh, alarming me quite a bit because I know that we're going to end up having to sift out the the legitimate misogyny that, I mean, I saw saw a report, I'm not going to name names here, but I saw uh, an opinion maker. Uh, point out that uh, Freeland was the quote unquote uh, the person that the, sorry that Mr. Morneau was the uh, the only person with uh, with business experience uh, capable of becoming or being the Minister of Finance, and that uh, Christian Freeland is just a journalist. And I, and I thought like okay, so if you want to make a legitimate criticism of Christian Freeland, there are so many options available to you. But going after the credentialist route for somebody who speaks multiple languages that that has a tremendous amount of uh, business experience, um, that was a, granted, I disagreed with just about every policy recommendation that uh, that she had, but as, as a matter of capability, was a more than capable uh, minister of foreign affairs, that's, but then that that's, that's what happens when your politics are whether you want to call it centrist or pragmatic or whatever, when your politics are decidedly pro-capitalist, then all of the available options for legitimate criticism get taken off the table. So really, what is it that you're objecting against? You're going to go after something like experience, which is absolutely ridiculous. If you want to have a conversation about uh, what Christian Freeland can be criticized on, how about the fact that she said that Canada stands shoulder to shoulder with Israel, that she has supported coup regimes, that 
uh, when uh, when Janine Agnes walked into uh, the uh, the presidential office with a, a Bible the size of a telephone book held over her head and talked about getting these spirits out of the office and and uh, somebody who has said that you know we will we will never have these uh, these 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 satanic presences in the office ever again that has turned out to, to be a, a a completely fascist and illegitimate regime that uh, they uh, they they've recognized. Juan Guaido, who has no claim to the presidency in Venezuela whatsoever, and and did not run for president, you know when we when we look at the uh, the, the 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 fact that Saudi Arabia has a business relationship with Canada due to the trade of arms that we've shipped from London, Ontario, to uh, to not only engage in the crackdown against uh, Saudi citizens but against the Yemenis also. Canada is responsible for these things. Then it it. Frightens me that we're going to go along willingly with this narrative that it is progressive in some way uh, to position this person for the next prime minister of Canada. It, essentially, what it is, it's going to be packaging more imperialist dogma underneath the auspices of progressivism. That's what's that's what frightens me. Uh, David, response to that? I think that I think that Andre hits it on the nose there. I think that the the um, Weapon is. I, I think the criticisms of Christian Freeland, as I see them from the conservatives and from some of the people in sort of the center right discussion about credentialism and you know she's never run a business, all these things. It's it's really kind of it's kind of quite funny because in Ontario we had a, a education minister who barely graduated high school, and I there wasn't much of a peep out of, of the National Post at that time. You know, mm-hmm. Christian Freeland is clearly very bright, very capable, and really has the political acumen to run any department, probably in, in any any ministry in, in the government. Now, those things beyond that, we need to have a discussion about. And the thing is that politicians that we're stuck with, you know, I mean, that's the fact is that for, probably for the foreseeable future, we will have a liberal government. Probably for the foreseeable future, these will be the ministers in play and they'll be shifted from, from ministry to ministry. We have to think about how do we help them evolve. I know that that's almost impossible, but these criticisms and criticisms lodged strategically and surgically can make a decision, can make a difference. But if journalists are going to use their bully pulpit to talk about uh, nonsense because she doesn't have an accounting degree from you know from Western uh, University, I, I don't know what to do about it because that's that you're never going to have any real systemic change or improvement in the government. But but just to Andre's point, I mean, I I it, it's again we get back to the circular we're all shooting at each other. But I mean, honestly, you can hold two thoughts in in your mind at the same time. On the left, I think you can say she's an accomplished woman, and yet she stood with fascists. <laughs> she's an accomplished woman, but yet they're still selling arms to Saudis. <laughs> she's an accomplished woman, but she's standing with big oil, which is going to be the death of the planet. I mean, these two things can go together and often do in under capitalism under the veneer of progress. I mean, I think the reality of the the scandals with the liberal brand, um, and Andre, it it seems to me, is right about that is, is, you know, wow. I mean, even when I was in government, um, it was just ongoing. Like, it was just one after the other after the other. And it's clearly their way of doing business. I mean, it is part and parcel. It's not an anomaly. It's the way liberals do business. Um, And so we're, we're so used to this now in Canada that I think people are just saying, well, at least it's better than conservatives. So that's really, they're, they're they're voting for them. I want to, you know, um, and, and we've, you know, we don't have all that many much time left, but I was just looking on two, two people who've been on the show, Sid Ryan and Alex Grant, 
um, Sid Ryan, labor, you know, retired labor leader, and Alex Grant, uh, Marxist, who's been on the show in the past. Uh, but it was just, it, it struck me that this was a classic situation we find ourselves in nonetheless. So, so Sid posted, Biden gave a great speech tonight, even quoted from my favorite poet, uh, Seamus Haney. And uh, Alex responded, Sid, people will remind you of this when Biden bombs the next country. Um, <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> and I, I, I thought, you know, here's two people. They're, they're, I mean, they're basically friends. I mean, we've all been on panels together. Like, uh, but I mean, here, you know, you've got the the, the historical moment in which we find ourselves. Um, so I mean, I, I want to kind of wrap this this piece up and then and then as a kind of as a happy way of segueing out of this of this show of law disorder and you're listening by the way to Andre Demise uh, contributing ed, uh, editor of McLean's and David Slavic political consultant and myself Sherry DeNovo a radical reverend on the radical reverend show and of course you can hear us on podcasts and I should also say we love to hear from you so any thoughts um, always respond um, always happy to hear um, but I want to hear, David, about your recent experience, just from a purely legal challenge point of view, you and your and your <laughs> wife, you know, getting out to Newfoundland. So we'll end, we'll end on that happy note, but let's just wrap up. Okay, so here we are in this political moment in history on the verge of an American election um, with a, a minority uh, liberal government in Canada. Um, uh, and Andre, I sort of know what you're going to say in a kind of nutshell, a sentence or two, you're going to say, get out in the streets, <laughs> but you know, just say it, say what, say what you see, preach. Oh yeah. No, I was, I mean, yes, absolutely. Get out in the streets, uh, support movements that are out. In, if you can't get out in the street yourself, that's fine. Like that's not everybody's role, but support movements uh, for people who are out in the streets. Uh, what I've been doing actually is uh, every time that I, I get paid from an article that I write or, or, or get uh, paid my, my paycheck from my regular day job, I'm putting money on people's books and putting money into, into bail funds. Like I can't go to the United States myself and engage in the protests or help bail people out, but I'll help out where I can. I haven't been able to get out to every protest that's been happening in Toronto. And when I can't, I will you know take some money and give it towards uh, worthwhile causes. Um, and I guess the last thing, and maybe we should, uh, yeah, pivot onto a happy note from this one. You know, my, my broader point is this idea of being seen, whether it's this, this romper room stuff at the DNC, you know, spelling BLM out in, in children's blocks behind Elizabeth Warren so that we can, we can act like it's a Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, Easter egg, or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden opening a speech with a quote from Ella Baker, this whole idea of being seen you know, and that's just enough like, that people acknowledge your existence and your presence and, and know that you're there. This idea of, of being seen, this representational politics is going to be the death of us all. If all we're willing to accept is the idea of being seen and not being heard, that actions are loud enough to for like, our, our actions, whether it's out in the streets or whether it's, uh, it's, it's, it's through our writing, it's, it's uh, through speaking up. But if those actions are not translating into direct results, whether it's at the local, the uh, state slash provincial or at the federal level, if that's not happening, then we just need to continue agitating harder. It's not enough to be seen. We have to be heard. David, um, one last line on, on topics at hand, and then please segue us into the story of you're in Newfoundland. <laughs> so first thing yeah, I they definitely say, heard you, bro. You yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did, actually. One of the guys I would say is support independent media. Uh, I'm going to make a plug for Andre. 
I don't know if he's, if he's comfortable with that, but uh, he has a, a project that I'm really excited about called Resistance to Moi, and uh, it's uh, Black media made from a, a left perspective. Um, it's, it's radical. It's critical. It's uh, the type of thing that you will not hear in a Robin D'Angelo seminar, and uh, <laughs> I think that you should check it out. And So, Andre, if you could spell that out for us. Oh, uh, uh, if you go to rznwa.com, uh, it'll take you to the website. It'll take you to all of our podcasts. We have like multiple podcasts that are out. We, uh, we write articles and yeah, we're, we're, we're seeing a bunch of stuff. Um, we're, 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 we're having conversations on the black left that you generally don't find elsewhere. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. Absolutely. I, I love the project. I've been really excited. He's been talking about it for some time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's really, uh, really great to see it come to fruition. There's some really brilliant people that uh, there's some really big names. And then there's some people who are, who are less well known, who I think are some of the, the, the brightest people on the left in, in the States and Canada in that project. And I, you really can't beat it. And, and we'll definitely put this out when we put this out on broadcast on the Radical Reverend, we'll, we'll give the, uh, the website, et cetera, Andre, um, so that folk have it. So, David, um, you, you're you're there with yeah. two babies in Newfoundland. Send yeah. us out on a happy note. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, we had a little bit of a legal challenge. Uh, we uh, it's really interesting to be a, a newcomer to Canada and then be involved in a constitutional issue uh, within a year of uh, arriving. Um, uh, I was we were blessed with uh, my wife and I. Uh, uh, she's an Osgood Hall professor, Heidi Matthews. Uh, she's the uh, director of the Nathanson Center for International uh, and Transnational Human Rights and Criminal Law, uh, where uh, Andre Demis is a is a fellow. Um, we um, had a challenge uh, to the uh, travel uh, ban for COVID nineteen and Newfoundland. Uh, there, Newfoundland has decided to essentially set up a their own internal border, which is a, a violation of both international law and the Charter of Rights. Uh, and uh, we had to file an exemption. We were first denied the ability to come see the grandparents uh, and because of this, this law uh, in some sort of uh, provincial Trumpism that, I, that I'm seeing uh, within, within the province. It's a wonderful province. The people are great. We, we did have our uh, exemption granted. There are two constitutional cases going forward. One uh, is uh, about a business owner who's actually from the Toronto area who has a business in, in Newfoundland, and that is uh, being run by a good friend of ours, Bob Buckingham, a brilliant lefty, uh, you know, uh, long-haired uh, hippie uh, the lawyer who we all love. Uh, and the other is uh, run by John Drover, and that's about a woman who was supposed to come to Newfoundland because her mother had died and was denied the ability to come and take care of her mother's affairs. Uh, one thing I would say is that there are opportunities where if you do push, you can be heard. It did take uh, us taking our story to the CBC and to numer numerous uh, other outlets and interviews and using my, my wife's bully pulpit to get us here. But not everyone has that opportunity. And I think that by getting here and having the opportunity to, to uh, be stuck in isolation for two weeks, we've had a lot of time to think about what that means and, and what that means for other people. And um, it makes me realize that you need to be staying committed, not just to your own rights and calling the manager of the government, but calling the manager of the government for everyone. Thank you, David. And that takes us right to time. You've been listening to the Radical Reverend Show. Want to uh, thank Andre and David for being on the panel. Um, uh, tune in. This will be on podcasts shortly. And of course, on CIUT 89.5 FM. Till the next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you all. Thank you.